Welcome to Taking the Helm with Lynn McLaughlin. We're making the emotional well-being of our children and youth the number one priority. Lynn and her guests are helping us learn and model proven healthy emotional habits to become rock-solid support systems for ourselves, our families, and communities. Now, here's your host. Hello and welcome back. I'd like to start out by giving a shout out to one of our listeners, Charlene Way of Nova Scotia. Thank you so much for your email. It warmed my heart and I just wanted to say that on air. You know, everyone, if uh, you listen to a guest or hear something in a conversation that moves you to think differently about how you're teaching or how you're raising your children, we'd love to hear from you. That really keeps us uh, keeps us on track and, and keeps us going. Now, if you missed us last month, Ann Coleman, wow, we were asking ourselves if our own behavior is actually the trigger for our kids. And sometimes it is. It's hard to say, but it's true. When Ann's teenage son was struggling with anxiety and depression and behavior issues, her home felt like a battleground. What's the worst thing we could do as a parent? What was the final straw that forced Ann to realize that her own approach to parenting was not working? And how does that teenage brain work? <laughs> We talked about why those combative approaches destroy relationships and what can we do to start that do-over. She's got a four-part process and wow, was it an action-packed hour. And it's an honor today to welcome my good friend, Dr. Sharon Pike. She has over 30 years of experience in public education with the majority of the time as an elementary and secondary administrator, a supervising principal, and lastly, as a superintendent for the last 14 years of her tenure. Her supervisory portfolios have primarily been in special education and student well-being. She supervised both school panels, including three mental health agencies in Windsor, Ontario, and her doctorate was earned from Northern Illinois University in 2001, and she's taught graduate and undergraduate students from both American and Canadian universities over the years. Retirement for Sharon includes being the president of the board of directors at Windsor-Essex Children and Youth Advocacy Centre and the May Court Club of Windsor. She's a member of St. Mark's by the Lake Parish Council, and she's actively organizing and promoting mental health workshops with local community agencies. Hi, Sharon. Hey, Lynn. Thanks so much for having me on your Taking the Helm podcast today. Oh, I'm, I'm just thrilled to have you. It's so nice to have somebody that we're, uh, you know, we've, we've worked together. We're good friends. We're just going to have a great conversation and help other people see that there are so many possibilities when we come together as a community. For sure. And I want to thank all the listeners um, for taking the time to listen to about this. I mean, when I reflect on some of the questions, I thought, who on earth wants to listen to me speak? And then I laugh because right now, one of my goals this year is listening to, or listening or reading biographies and autobiographies. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe I do have something to say today. Yes, you do. You have a lot to say. <laughs> well, you know, it's always interesting when we take a look at why people are where they are today. So what's your background, Sharon, and what brought you to what you're doing today? Well, I'm going to start off right away by saying that I worked for 32 years in the education sector, started from a teacher, went to superintendent of student well-being. Um, and only so that it, when you when I start telling my story, that people don't get lost of where I ended up. So I've been involved with many, many different organizations over the years, over the decades, actually, in volunteer capacities. And I wholeheartedly believe in the power of volunteering. And even when I was working full time, I was always doing something that was a volunteer basis. 
So, um, you know, my curiosity um, right from the beginning about how the world worked and how the people interacted within it and what were the gaps that needed filling was high. I may look back and I see there was a pattern beginning right in my formative years of what that looks like. So volunteerism has been, you know, woven into the past, even when I attended elementary school, whether it was working in the office when we were allowed to do that as students, Mm -hmm. or, you know, someone needing help around the school. It really set the stage for me for working and learning without any pay, uh, without any, uh, you know, um, compensation, without any accolades, without my friends sometimes, as we know, that's a very big thing in in schools. Um, But really, it helped develop a really strong belief that helping people is feeling good, makes you feel good. It's a good thing to do. It may sound a little bit hokey, um, but anyway, that's where I thought, okay, that's where I start. I don't think, think it sounds hokey at all. The volunteerism really does warm your heart. When, when you make an impact on people just for being at a certain place at a certain time or leading um, a movement towards change, and you impact one person in a positive way, ah, it's not hokey at all. And actually, and it's reversed too, that they make an impact on you. Yes. Didn't even think that that would happen. You go there for a purpose, like you're volunteering at perhaps a shop or whatever. And then the what you take from it is is pretty enormous. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so this whole sense of volunteerism really, you know, carried on in secondary school. You know, being on student council involved, heavily involved in sports and clubs and activities. I was always looking for opportunities to get involved. Um, So when I entered post-secondary, the sense of getting involved and being involved really nurtured my independence on how to make a difference. What does that look like? So um, I did play varsity volleyball for four years when I was attending um, university and earned the title of captain for my last two, which uh, really talks about people coming and talking to you and telling you their stories, how they're feeling. So you're getting that sense of that people are not all like you. Um, And I once found out that the university newspaper um, did not write about women's sports at all. So I voluntarily contributed to the paper each week during the season. I mean, when you think of it, you're playing a sport, you're in a tournament, you do well, and you come back and there's nothing written yet. There might be something written on another team, a little bit more of known team, perhaps, mm-hmm. who's lost everything and then gets a huge page. So, I mean, it really, it really made me really upset. And especially, mm-hmm. I actually took CBC on as well, saying, hey, where are the women's sports? There's lots of things out there. There's lots of great things. Why are we being recognized, I guess, in that? And um I thought that was pretty pretty bold for a, a young a young person, 19, 20 years old, taking that on. Um, but and thank goodness things have changed. I mean, we're talking decades ago. Things have changed. But you know, a little bit of history about yourself that you're a little, a little bit proud of. Maybe you made a change in one little thing. Oh, I think that's huge. That's absolutely huge. And you know, for our younger listeners, yeah, this was reality not that long ago. I have a I'm gonna just jump in here for a friend, just in terms of the women piece. Uh, she was not allowed to take architecture in grade 12, grade and grade 13. We had grade 13 because she was a woman. Guess what? She went to university in civil engineering degree, but she had to do that course in her first year of university when all of her fellow students who were men 
did not have to do it. So she had more of that load because of the rules discrimination back at that time. So she fought mm -hmm. it and you fought that one. And I'd love to hear from our listeners, other people who fought those those archaic ways of thinking and doing things. <laughs> yeah. It really makes you proud that you've done something and you've stepped up. I mean, mm -hmm. lots of examples as you go through your life, um, but it's okay to take a stand and it's okay to question. It's okay to ask um, people in power what's going on and why they're doing it. Agreed. So uh, during and after university, um, I worked at a, a credit union, actually, a financial institution, and this really opened my eyes. So I'm a naive 19-year-old, <laughs> and now I am a teller. Now, a teller back then is not the same as what it was back uh, nowadays. We each had our own cash. We greeted people. They came to us for everything, and we took care of them. So you spent a little bit more time with each of the clients, and perhaps you would now. So I heard stories of mental health. I heard stories of addiction, mm. of loss of houses, financial financial crises, grandchildren, layoffs, children leaving home, people not finishing high school. Like all of these issues came forward as I am doing their banking. And so my little insular world didn't include these types of lifestyles or social issues. Okay, so remember, I'm 19. So I'm, they were there, just I didn't know about them mm -hmm. when I was 19. So I continued there after graduation of the university, and I worked full-time, and at the same time was coaching volleyball at the University of Windsor until my first baby came along. You know, um, and, and you know me, I tend to have a little bit of energy, lots of energy. <laughs> so even when I was on my mat leave, which back then was only four months, um, I was approached and asked if I would um, coach a high school team. So by coaching, um, this allowed me to enter into a secondary school environment, mm -hmm. not from a student perspective, but from an adult perspective. And I have to say that I found this incredibly fasc fascinating. The inside world of teachers and coaches and administrators. I mean, the whole staff room thing. I mean, that was back then when you were a kid, you never went into the staff room. Nope. <laughs> but it really was about these people voicing their concerns about some of my athletes. And that was unexpected to me. And I often wondered if I was really coaching the same kid as they were describing. I mean, they were voicing that they were maybe lethargic or didn't want to get involved. And my practices, of course, were full of activity and drills and teamwork and positive talk. And in class, some of them were despondent or behavioral. And this is my introduction to the concept of well-being but I didn't really realize it until years later. Mm -hmm. So you take a same student that's got these kinds of issues in school, but once they were on the court with me, totally different kid. It spoke to how they were feeling about themselves, the physical activity. Maybe, I mean, I always talk about nutrition. Maybe for that little bit of time that I was with them, they changed the nutrition, who knows? But this concept of well-being now is embedded in my brain, though it's not called well-being. There's no domains yet. It's just, hmm, when people are doing physical activity, they're feeling better. Mm -hmm. When they're part of a team, they're feeling better. And so this experience and the encouragement of the coach, um, the teacher's coach sponsor, and actually the administrators encouraged me to apply to the faculty of education, or back then it was called teacher training. And if I say making this final decision to actually leave my full-time position to part-time work, 
with a one-year-old, a car payment, a mortgage, Mm -hmm. a very Uh busy husband. If if I say that was easy, I am not telling the truth. Um, It was a huge, huge life-altering decision. And with my husband, we talked in the pros and cons. And it was interesting that it was my grandmother who actually chirped in her two cents once when we were having a conversation Mm -hmm. that thought, okay, you know what? I can do this. I can make this all work. I can juggle all these things around to do something I think I'd like to do. Um, But I didn't actually even attend the first day of classes at um, the faculty of ed because I was still deciding. And then um, I accepted and then I went through it. So my teaching placements were varied and they were all at the elementary level, even though I had hoped to get into secondary school. It was a bit of a whirlwind, but I did earn one of the school board's coveted full-time positions and I was expecting our second child in August. So it's August, had my baby, I started school in September. Yeah. So it was a crazy time. And you talk about getting things in order and re-establishing what are the priorities. It certainly, certainly was started off the whole career like that. So with uh, my years of teaching, um, I was the coach and the extracurricular queen. And to be honest, I have always had an amazing staff wherever I worked. And But for me, it was just fun to be with the kids. So these, all of these experiences were volunteer and the volunteerism focused exclusively on kids. So when I said originally I did a lot of volunteering, I did. But at this part of my life, it was just all on kids. Um, I have memories of racing home to pick up my two little ones so I can bring them to the court. I could coach my volleyball games, mm-hmm. coach my other teams, and they would be hanging out with the other athletes or other staff who helped out with that. It's really a lot of fond memories of that of my time teaching and meeting kids where they're at, working at understanding the impact of the environment of the learning, which is so Mm -hmm. key, and then the power of well-being as I keep thinking, okay, how do I make sure that this isn't involved in in who I am and how I teach? You know, at one point when I was in elementary, another teacher and I actually drove a student. I can't believe that we would ever get away with it now. But we picked up a student at home. We took them to Sears. We bought them, bought her bras, bought her dinner, and then we brought her home. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are the kinds of things that we had a little bit more latitude to do back then. Yeah, we sure did. We did. Yeah, we certainly. And it's used to drive. We used to drive students to sports games. Used to drive them home. Used to drive them home from school if they were ill. I mean, yeah, yeah. Liability certainly changed all that, didn't it? It sure did. Mm. And then at secondary, when I closed any of my coaching, I coached a lot of teams. Um, when I closed the coaching season, I always had the athletes to the house where they ate, 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 ate. Yeah. Um, but it really gave them another opportunity to see how people lived. And it gave me an opportunity to meet them outside. But they got to know me more as a, a person outside of being a teacher or a coach. Um, I remember the kids, there was um, happened to be a boys team and they came over and one of my sons at that point was into, I think it was Mario, one of those racing games. <laughs> Mario and, Brothers. And the, and the kids were, and this was pretty at the very beginning where it wasn't on handhelds or anything, you had to be at the TV and all that kind of stuff. And I remember my kids, my kids saying to the older ones, you've got to play this. And it was laughable because they were much better <laughs> than the older kids. <laughs> it's that connection piece, right? I mean, what I was doing, um, and I couldn't articulate back then, was I was making deep connections with my athletes or with my students, which transcended outside of the classroom or outside of the court, outside of the gym. 
um, some of my athletes, as I move forward in my um, coaching and in my teaching years, some of the athletes couldn't believe that I would actually volunteer my outside time to be with the teams. Um, and at that time, I had three kids under 10. And I remember saying jokingly, well, you're worth it. And then that would be it. And then let's move on. Come on. Let's get to the <laughs> Try to waste time kind of thing. Um, did we win any championships? Nope. Did we have a good record in any of these teams? Can't remember. So why did I continue to keep doing that? It's because it made me feel good. Mm. Made me feel that my volunteering of time and and whatever skills I had was making a difference in the kids. And, you know, when you think about volunteerism, it benefits not only the person or the family or the unit or whatever, um, but it has a, a really impact on the person who's volunteering. So, you know, study after study shows that sharing your time with others, um, bringing in your expertise without any compensation, um, it increases your mood. Mm -hmm. It provides other ways of being, feeling happy. Your brain activity is actually different, according to research. It boosts, you know, your confidence or your self-esteem, depending on what it is. It provides meaning at different times in your life when you need to have that meaning part of it. It certainly makes an impact on a community, wherever it is, whatever that looks like for you. And um, as one researcher notes, it provides a helper's high with volunteer. So true. Oh, I got to jump in here for just a yes, second, Sharon, sure. because... Uh, I love the research. Try it. Try it just once. I I'm a Rotary member. Rotary is an international. I mean, that's one way people can volunteer through organizations. But we also have quite a few volunteers locally in many different um, aspects. And the food bank is something. So I want to add something into the research here in terms of you. You, I think you said it earlier. We live in our own worlds, right? When we go out and volunteer in a capacity like at the local food bank, we see things we're not normally going to see in our lives, right? And so under understand the struggles that people are going through right here in my own little town, down the street. And it really, it just keeps things, keeps you grounded, keeps you focused, and gives you that sense of, I need, I need to help. Not just I want to help, I need to help. And you feel compelled to that. Yes. And while it's not everyone feels compelled, for example, to work at the food bank, there's going to be something else that you feel compelled oh, to do. Yeah, yeah. And if we can get rid of the whole idea that, you know, we when we work, we should get paid or we get compensated some way. If we just go to give, whether it's your time, your expertise, I don't know, um, your shoes. I don't know. Um, it is, it's, <laughs> it's different and it's what we need to be doing in, in my respect, but I can understand some people don't like it. They're shy, whatever, but there's always something that you can be doing to be volunteering. And, you know, and it does ward off feeling lonely. Yes. It does ward off not belonging. I mean, we as social creatures want to belong. And we know that the research way out there in the well-being world anyway is out there and kids want to belong. Adults want to belong. When people say, oh, I can do it myself, you know, you may be able to do that task by yourself, but if you're part of a bigger group or a bigger cause, um, it, it really changes, like you say, the way you view whatever you're doing differently or adds information or gets rid of stigma, all sorts of things that it can do. And a little point here, um, my niece is a social worker and I asked her just last week, your clients are teenagers. What is their biggest struggle? It's loneliness, mm -hmm. loneliness. People don't think about volunteerism for 19 year olds like you were or younger than 19 year olds as a possible way outside of 
feeling alone. It's a way to connect. Just had to throw that into. Well, actually, well, and it's true because and I don't want to blame social media or any tech for that piece of it, but it does contribute to the sense of feeling lonely. Adolescence is a tough time for anybody anyway. Um, and kids do think that they're the only ones that are feeling like this. And this is, I'm the only one, you're the strict parent, all that kind of stuff. They're very egocentric at that mm-hmm. development piece. And it is once they get into volunteering, it, it does open their eyes to, okay, maybe I, they're not as strict. Maybe I'm not as alone. There's all sorts of things that I could be doing to make myself feel good. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not even talking about what what the impact of your work is. So if this is all doing it for us as volunteers, and then we are changing the world um, and our organizations and making them um, thriving, taking them in different directions because of the work that we actually do. Yeah. And I just want to throw this in too, Sharon, because we have mm-hmm. listeners worldwide, but in Ontario, uh, part of the requirements to graduate from secondary schools is 40 hours of community service. And that obviously is a, a method, a methodology through the Ministry of Education to get kids enjoying this and giving back to their community and making it part of their futures. I think it's wonderful. And I'd love to see it carry on globally. It would be, and it would be nice. It's going to be interesting to see what our world is in volunteerism another 10, 15 years from now as that continues to take place. Mm-hmm. Because you see a lot of volunteerism, at the, of course, at the high school, as you had said, because they were required to do it to graduate, but also in people who are retiring, just about to retire, um, or retired, um, mm-hmm. in terms of giving back to the community. And it's that the middle part. How can we make sure they're part of all too? Because w- without some of the, the volunteerism, in the community, some of our agencies wouldn't wouldn't survive at all. Like Very for example, true. when you walk into a hospital, you see volunteers at the tuck shop or the gift shop, whatever you at the front desk, you know, how can I help you? Can I direct you? Mm-hmm. Um, are you wearing a mask? Okay, that was during the pandemic. But you have them in the waiting room too. So they're asking if you need anything as you wait for results from a, um, a loved one's surgery. Um, they're welcoming you as you move along in your appointments. And they're walking around if you need a snack when you're admitted on the floor. They they do transportation to cars after procedure. Like volunteers support the works of the professionals. So the professionals can focus exclusively on their patients. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you think about even big sisters and big brothers, the concept of mentoring a young person or another organization have tutors for kids so they could pass their courses or even just running a, an event like a walkathon or a book sale or something. Yeah. You know, we meals on wheels. Yes. Of, yeah. There's all, so many opportunities, but they rely on volunteers in order to get their mission accomplished and they're needed. And in the example that I just gave, the, the hospital one, um, that's pretty well accepted. People expect them to be there. And I, I'd like to challenge us in our thinking and stigma, and I'll probably I'll talk about this a little bit later, is um, about mental health. Do you get that same kind of sense of volunteers are involved in an institution that's offering mental health services? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would ch- challenge us to think that because it's not the same. And why? Why isn't that? Good question. More about that, More about that later. Um, I wanted to continue just a little bit about um, the volunteerism and the cost savings for government programming. So like you say, you've got worldwide listeners and Canada has a pretty robust social system when it comes to providing for um, our citizens. And if we didn't have volunteers in that capacity for services, like, you know, just like you said, Meals on Wheels or providing rides to children and youth when visiting parents, toy drives, you know, 
food hampers, all those kinds of things. If they didn't exist, that would be a cost, an additional cost to government agencies mm-hmm. knocking on the doors of the municipalities or the government, provincial governments for services that volunteers now do um, for our community. It's not just self-serving volunteerism. It's going outside of yourself and how can we make this community. So I always, people always say, you know, volunteer is just to make you feel better. Well, yeah, you're right. (laughs) It does certainly help the organization that you're volunteering. And I say, who cares? If I volunteer because it makes me feel good or I volunteer because I want to help this institution, it's a mutual thing. Exactly. There's my question with the purpose or the, the, the questioning why you're volunteering. What's, you know, what's the point of that? The fact that you're there is all that matters. And there are people that say <laughs> you should be not volunteering. You should be getting paid for what you're doing. That's mm. all volunteerism is about. It's you no. know, outside. But anyway, um, so back to my own personal journey. Um, the seeds of act of volunteering were planted, as I said, in elementary school, continue to grow and still are growing as a retiree. And so were the seeds of this term well-being, the domains of physical, of physical, of social, cognitive, and emotional. So you got those four things that really, in Ontario, we are really focusing on as, as a school board and as a, a, um, as a full uh, ministry of education. And those really impacted me when I learned about what the differences were. And if you just give me a minute, I just want to tell the the listeners in terms of what that means is when I say about cognitive or some people call it intellectual, it's about expanding your knowledge and, you know, learning skills about problem solving and creativity, getting those dendrites in the brains moving and being curious. That was all in to do with the cognitive or intellectual piece of it. And the emotional is about learning and experiencing your emotions, naming those emotions, (laughs) the triggers of those emotions, and how would you cope with emotions? How do you not get into that spiral of worrying about things and it gets worse and catastrophizing? All of that would be in the emotional. And it also does help avoid burnout, recognizing when you're, you're overextended and you're underextended, all that. Social is that sense of belonging we talked about. Um... everybody wants to belong somewhere, whether or not it's online or it's in person or it's a book club or it's whatever, people want to belong. They want to have meaningful connections and, you know, leaning on your support systems or developing those support systems so you can lean on them and relationship with others and your, and your communication. And the fourth of the physical is exactly what it sounds like. It's about the body. Mm. It's about physical activity. It's about sleep. It's about eating and healthy life choices. Actually, when you think of the physical part, that almost sounds like a remedy for anything you've got. They always say, are you getting enough sleep? Are you eating right? You know, all those kinds of things come together in the physical. And those four really, really impacted me in my work and what that looked like. And so I focused my career um, on these four domains without actually naming them at first and then having a name to them. Um, I was able to name it and then challenge the school system, not only to teach it, but to engage it itself as an adult teaching kids, because that's pretty hard work. And then as you know, as I move along and I'm out of the school system, there's other aspects of this that makes really good sense to me. One is occupational wellness. You know, finding meaningful, fulfilling work and financial stability 
um, which is luckily um, in our system anyway, it's through pensions, et cetera. That's nice. But I also say it's not just about finding fulfilling work that's paid. It's finding fulfilling work that's not paid. It's the volunteer piece that I see as occupational wellness. And then two other ones. One is your spiritual part. And that was always in the well-being wheel for the um, the province of Ontario. But this one is, in as I reflect on it, it's it's a bigger piece than that. It's not only your beliefs and your values and your ethics, but it's things that are going to help inform your life and inform your path of how you're going to move forward. So it's not just about the spiritual piece of it, but it's your beliefs, which sometimes are spiritual or not, but it's your beliefs that guide you through that piece. And the last one is about environment, environmental wellness, you know, setting yourself in an environment that improves your well-being. So if you're working in a location or you're volunteering in this case, in a location that you don't feel is um, you're working out, you're not feeling fulfilled, you're not feeling you're contributing, get out, find something else. Mm -hmm. You're not married to it. And I think that those, all those big pieces of this well-being wheel are super important for all of us to take a look at. Oh, that is a brilliant way um, to finish off the first section of the show and move off to break. Sharon, while we come back, everybody, we're going to be talking about how do we normalize talking about feelings and what are the benefits when communities come together for, through volunteerism? What are the challenges and what Sharon is doing right now to pull all of that together and make it work in Windsor, Essex? We'll be right back. A little birdie told me Voice America is on X. Follow us at Voice America TRN. <laughs> Our children are growing up in a world that is more complex than ever. It's time to start thinking proactively. Meet Zerko and the children who glow in the color they are feeling because they haven't learned to control their emotions yet. In the Power of Thought Children's series, we're not only teaching children about emotional vocabulary, but how to recognize how they are feeling and what they can do about it. We live on an imaginary planet called Tezra, where every character is named after a crystal. Each of the five books in the series takes children into a situation they can relate to, but teaches problem-solving skills and evidence-based strategies they can use for life. This series was developed in collaboration with clinicians, educators, parents, and guardians, and it's the winner of the Mom's Choice Award. Check it out at lynnmclaughlin.com under the Books tab. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Taking the Helm with host Lynn McLaughlin. Now, let's get back to the show. 
And welcome back, everyone. In the first half of our show with Dr. Sharon Pike, we talked about many things, including her her history, <laughs> going all the way back to elementary school around volunteerism. But what are the seven components of well-being? We never thought of seven before. Thank you, Sharon, for articulating that so well. So let's move on now to what brought you into the realm of mental health and what are you currently working on, Sharon? Well, you know, when you talk about the seven um, stages or the seven domains, um, I really increasingly became involved over the years, over the decades, I should say, on the emotional and social domains of well-being. Like, I want to be very clear with your listeners, I am not a social worker. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not any of those things. I am an administrator, um, but I work with some pretty talented and knowledgeable, dedicated people who were very good at their jobs. And so you set the stage for that piece. And I don't want them to think that I'm glossing over my 32 years of being in the school system, but I can see that um, those years pushed and pulled me to the domains of the well-being wheel, that I as an administrator now can set the stage so those students or their staff or those families could recognize and engage in the work that needs to be done. It's their expertise piece. Um, so, you know, our biggest thing or always been my big thing is normalizing mental health. But I, I want to make sure that listeners know the difference. And I'm sure they do if they're listening to this between mental health and mental illness, because they're often used interchangeably and mm, they are often. not the same thing. I mean, mental health is similar concept to physical health, right? It refers to a state of well-being. So mental health includes our emotions and our connections with others, our thoughts, our feelings, being able to manage those huge highs and those low, low, lows. It's not just about, it's it's about thriving. It's not just about surviving. So enjoying our life in a sense of purpose. It's about our well-being. But mental illness is being diagnosed by a medical practitioner. And you've heard the terms before, like the mood disorders, like depression or anxiety disorders or schizophrenia. It's amazing to me how many people throw those terms around in the media um, or they'll make judgments of people and they have no business making any judgment on that because people know is in well-being, you go up and down in mood and sometimes, you know, things happen. But when you've been labeled it and you start to believe it, which is really concerning for, for all of us. So um, when I hear about, you know, um, let's say something's happened in the media or social media and right away they say this person did that crime or committed that did whatever because they had they were depressed i keep thinking wait a minute they may be depressed none of our business but it's untreated depression it's untreated mental illness it's not mental illness doesn't cause people to go out and and do horrific things in our community no no people are managing it and there's so many people that have mental illness and that's fine. There's so many people that have cancer and have a broken leg. And that's fine, too. Um, so normalizing mental health for me has been probably the work of the last two decades for me in, in getting people to understand the difference. So when we get outside or when you get this you know, outside influence of social media or even just conversations with people who think that they know and they're judging, um, we have to sit back and, and evaluate what they're saying and don't take it at face value um, because that's not what we're what it's about. It is about well-being. It's about what does that mean? What does that look like in your life, which will be different than in my life and what that what that means. So I just thought I'd give a, just a little bit of context about physical health versus mental health. We're very apt to talk about physical health. When you think about some of the stats of, you know, heart attack, one in in, in 12, over the age of 20, live with a diagnosed heart disease. 
acceptable. People understand that. There's no judgment. Mm-hmm. Diabetes is one in 10 Canadians age 20 or over. These stats are coming from Stats Canada. Well, we don't judge about that. We don't make comments about that. We don't make can- comments about cancer. But, you know, these are real and they're concerning statistics. No kidding. And there are campaigns out there. There's target setting for funding. There's open conversations about risk and treatment and prevention. Now let's turn to the mental health world. And any given year, one in five people in Canada will personally experience a mental health problem or an illness. Mm -hmm. One in five. By age 40, 50% of the population will have had or have a mental illness. And those are stats coming from 2022. And there's also one is one in 12 Canadians is having severe mental health difficulties. And one in five have contemplated suicide since the onset of the pandemic. Again, 2022 statistics. So let's turn our heart, our, our mind now to our youth. Um, on the CMHA, Canadian Mental Health Association website, it says one in four or one in five, depending on where you read, of Canadian youth are affected by mental illness or disorder. Now, of those one, so one in five of those children are going to receive appropriate mental health services. That's criminal. It is. And I just read it's now moved to one in four. So while that's thinking, okay, that's getting better, it's not, it's unacceptable. There's, still three, there's still three kids that are not getting uh, the treatment yes. or services that they need. Yeah, that's right. And if you have a broken leg, you're going to get service. You have cancer, you're going to get service. Why why is that so different? And, you know, and Aboriginal youth are even five to six times more likely to die by suicide than non-Aboriginal. These are statistics that are out there. Where's the fundraising? Where's the targeted setting? Where's the campaigns? Where's the open conversations about risk treatment and prevention? We've got a long way to go. And so um, that actually goes to kind of some of the things that I've been thinking about as what I do for my volunteers work. I find that people um, in the mental health, when they want to get involved in the mental health, um, are unsure how to do it. Like, what does that look like? And, and they don't have the connections or they don't feel they have anything to contribute or they feel there's a stigma attached to it still. Like or they're I, afraid because they don't know what to say and what will that look like and will I become vulnerable? Will this will this bring out something that I need to deal with? Like there's all that trepidation that goes with sure. it too. When you think in that nor in that what's the word I want with the umbrella of mental health specific, or they they don't want to be totally attached to it. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. They don't want to be that to be their the way that people see them all the time. But everybody's got a story, and so. Um, I've got a couple of examples of what I'm doing. Um, and if you're okay, I'm just kind of move into that part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the May Court Club of Windsor. So it's a club, um, all volunteers. <clears throat> Their mission is to raise funds and give those funds back to the immediate community. And so they assist um, children and youth physical and mental health agencies. So um, for the last two years, this club of about 100 people has provided $90,000 to agencies who are providing quality services to kids. So you've got this group of people that come together, they agree with the mission, and actually we do have a shop and we get donations that come into the shop. Um, We go through them, we have them on floor, we sell them to people who need that type of, well, anybody, to be honest, there's some really good stuff in there. There's household, gently household goods, and there's also goods that are brand new, depending on what people are donating. And so it's twofold. One is we're helping the community 
and we're also raising funds to to provide back into it. So would this be under, under the umbrella of a nonprofit organization? Yes. Okay. So it's considered nonprofit, all done by volunteers. No one gets paid. And I think the same thing about 100 Women Who Care, which has branches all over the world, you know, where everybody brings a $100 check four times a year and we support community organizations. So that organization that is the selected one that month leaves with $10,000, which is phenomenal. For sure. And when you think about donations, you know, people donate to bins all the time, but when you donate here, nothing goes to waste. So there's been connections made within that shop and within that club. For example, um, if they get any kind of fabric that goes to the Windsor Regional Hospital for volunteers to make hats for people who've got cancer. I mean, any yarn that goes to organizations who make hats and donate them to schools or to um, homeless shelters. I mean, we donate to several palsy for the items that we can't sell or they're damaged or there's just one of, and they do what they need to do. So there's just so many different connections pieces of there. And it all started with someone thinking about it and yeah. then doing it, uh-huh. you know, that kind of thing. And when you think about all of the actual funds stay in the community and people have to apply for grants, which is very, very not onerous at all. And they are given this money to do the work. They're the experts. We raise the money. They're the experts. Go do the work. And that's wonderful that the grant application for that organization is not onerous because sometimes that's the stop right away. Oh my gosh, this is just forget it. I'm not even going to (laughs) try. No, you're right. Something to think about though. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. And then people have to really think about different ways that they're volunteering that's outside of the mainstream. And I know this is, um, you know, I've always maintained that we don't always need more money in order to make change. We need to mobilize different We need to let go of preconceived notions and work together to get things done. Like check those egos at the door, Mm. come in, let's, let's reimagine, let's do something different. And I think that that's where people anywhere where they live can start thinking about that. Not that your way is going to be the only way, but when you're part of a group and you bring your idea and that's all of a sudden there's connections and there's people saying, yeah, we could do this and this and this. And you get some really cool things that come out of that piece of it. So there's another um, organization, too, that I'm working with, or I'm part of, I should say, and that's my church. It's my local church, St. Mark's by the Lake, Um, and it's an outreach, and we provide workshops, free workshops to parents and to caregivers or to anyone who works with kids, and they're issues that we're seeing in the community, but actually the mental health providers are telling us this is a big, big ticket item. We're seeing more kids do this. We're seeing more kids have this. And so we worked with our mental health provider and said, okay, we've got this beautiful space. There's sunshine. We've got large open area where you could fit 150 people in. We've got beautiful washrooms. We've got a full kitchen. It's not being used all the time. Use it. Yeah. Have your workshops at our place. And it's going super well. Uh, We started with um, one organization, so we've moved to two. Now we do some, a course actually, five-week courses with CMHA. And then we do other courses, which are presentations for parents at night. And that's done by one of our local mental health facilities, Maryvale. And they're donating their time. They're coming in. They're donating their time. They are showing people that mental health is just not their building. It's out there. There's mental illness. How do you... How can you cope as parents? What does it look like? And our numbers are really skyrocketing. We're advertising all over the place. Um, we're getting those, those really 
points of where we can get information out. So now we've actually expanded that to all of the school boards and all the schools and the other mental health facilities around. Private practitioners are actually calling us and saying, hey, when's the next one? You know, how can we help? Like it's becoming, it's small and it's growing, but it's growing and it's, it's showing that people want this information. It's free. And you know what? You don't have to spend 40 minutes in a car to go. You can walk down to our local church or you just drive in. So we're getting some really not just good response, um, but good information out there for people. So for our listeners, when you think about this, you're bringing it into your community. And, you know, if you live in a community as large as Essex County, you're driving one hour from the other one end to the other. Right. But what what facilities do you have in your own community where you could offer these things for free? Churches are a prime example. You know, community centers, um, something with your municipality, like what's available to you? And then, wow, I think it's brilliant, Sharon. I really do. And and I what I really like about it is the stigma that's taking off of going into a mental health facility, regardless of how much work that we're doing. um, There is still the stigma of going to that place. I don't want to be seen walking in because people will make assumptions about what I'm going through or someone in my family is going through. Yeah, that's correct. And then there's Mm -hmm. free parking so that you don't have to worry about paid lots if something's in a hospital. So there's all sorts of really great benefits to it. We haven't found really any drawbacks to what we're doing. And this is our first year doing it. But we can see that we are going to continue with it. Now, the topics aren't about, you know, we're going to talk today about you know, depression. No, it's nothing like that. It's about how are you going to talk to, how can you communicate with your, your team? Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens when they are, their behavior is unregulated? How do you remain calm? And actually from our last session, we are doing one now on social media and your kids. What yeah. does that look like? What's normal for that kind of thing? So these are topics that people want to hear about. And we just go out and find the speakers and we bring them in. So we're up to three different organizations that are involved in our and countless number of private practitioners that are promoting it for us and physicians that are promoting it. And so we're able to get, say, this is just, just come on out. It's a church. It's easy. It's, mm-hmm. we're not trying to bring you into the church and no, no, you're using our space. This yeah. is what our space is used for. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty exciting thing that we're doing. And I encourage everyone to think about what that looks like. If you've got a space in your community that's not being used, why not think about what could go there? Maybe yes. it's going to be about physical health. Maybe you're going to have a, I don't know, um, a presentation on osteoporosis, like whatever, (laughs) how can we use them differently? So let's talk about what some of the challenges are. So here I am, I'm Lynn, and I have this brilliant idea. I want to start something up in Kingsville here. What's my first step, Sharon? What, what, What can I start as an individual? What's my first step? You know, I, I really thought about what that looks like. Um, and the, and the first thing is voicing it to someone. So if you have an idea, you can't keep it to yourself because it'll be one of those things that should have, would have, could have. You have to voice it to someone and someone says, you know, I've been thinking about that too. And you'll find that more than one person is thinking, maybe not exactly your same idea, but the same concept of what that looks like. And so you talk about it and you talk about it when you go, for example, at your Rotary Club, you belong to, and you talk about it with your neighbors, you talk about your family. And then you're going to find that you're going to have a few core people that say, Hey, hey, I want to work with you on that. Or I know somebody who would be interested in this and make the connections. Yeah. That whole connection piece. Remember about everybody wanting to belong. This is one part of it. Um, But if you keep it to yourself and think about it and overthink about it, you're not going to get it done. 
it's not going to be perfect when it first comes out of your mouth or whatever your idea is. It's just going to be, okay, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think about that? And then you move from that. I mean, there are communication barriers. There can be. And if you have an idea and you've got some people think, yeah, you know, I want to try that. I've got some suit connections. And then it's talking about to the agency, if that's the way it's going to be, or um, talking to someone who would be able to further your cause within an organization which is different, right? We can have all our ideas out here in the community, but in order to move forward with some of them, we have to get the buy-in or the nod from some organizations that would be able to help perhaps promote it or be part of it or, or, or all sorts of different things with that. Um, and we have to remember too that they're overworked most places. If I'm going to speak to the mental health world, they're, they're overworked. There's lots to be done. Mm -hmm. And so if you have an idea that's totally concrete and you're not willing to be flexible in it, most likely it's you're not going to move forward with it. You have to listen to what they need. What do they need? Okay, I can make that work. That fits in with what I'm thinking. And you move forward with that. Um, also about, it's it's interesting, and I we talked a little bit about this, but when we talk about what are the challenges, sometimes it's the shame or guilt of the person who has the idea. Some people would ask, why do you have that idea? Well, you know, I'm not going to tell you. It's a personal thing or maybe with someone in my family or, or, or. And it's letting people, um, you have to let them know all your personal life. But why is there shame and guilt around mental health? And that's something that we have to chip away at. Um, Guilt that someone maybe died by suicide and you didn't know they were suffering. Maybe there was you've experienced types of feelings that mean you could have been more compassionate or more sympathetic. You know, those are the things that you work towards. I mean, you want to make sure that you're doing with what you can within and you've got your people around you that are working with you. And you don't make it so personal sometimes because that can, can sidetrack a really strong movement moving forward. When you look back, it's movements that are there. And then there's also, I find, um, judgment of volunteering. Some people automatically want to be paid. I got an idea. I'll help work it, but I got to be paid for it. Well, that's not what volunteerism is about at all, as we've just talked about. Um, if you want a paying job, then you apply to, to a place to get a paying job for it. But if you've got an idea about a volunteer thing, then you move forward with that. And then you always have to think about, too, some of the challenges is a closed culture. If you are going to be partnering with uh, different people um, or a different organization, you get sometimes stuck with them or you saying this is the way we've always done it. You know, you're not oh, yes. open to listening to new ideas or approaches or maybe are even nervous about the quality of the volunteerism of why they're there or the volunteers. You have to really go into it knowing that there's going to be some resistance sometimes. But if you're positive and you think, you know what? Yeah, you're right. How can we get over that? What's the can-do kind of attitude to yeah. move forward? Um, otherwise, you could wallow in things that you can't do because of this and this and this. Oh, and maybe you have some of the information that you shared with us earlier. Okay, we've always done this, done it this way, but three out of four students, three out of four kids are not getting the help they need. Can we think differently? Okay, yeah. let's let's challenge ourselves to cut, think outside the box and come up with other possibilities. And does help always have to be one thing? Can't it be a whole bunch of other things to get kids involved in X, Y, Z? Yeah. Maybe they're not going just for counseling. They're um, learning a new skill. There's all sorts of things that you could be taking a look at until they could get to the mental health providers if that's what they're, where they're going. Totally agree. Totally agree. And I also think, too, about differing priorities, too. If you are going into something and you have a very rigid view, the priorities are not going to be the same with all the people that you're working with. 
And you may not have people to be working with if you have a rigid outlook. So really being open to listening and opening to cultures, opening to where you want it to go. And I think that that's where people should really begin to start. So much to think about. And I hope, I hope listeners that you're starting to think about what can I do? What can I do? So how do we start a grassroots movement, Sharon? Well, I think right away you start with your own interests. Ask yourself what you're interested in and what do you believe in and how do you move forward? And as I said before, you get those group of people, but you've got to canvas what's out there. I mean, maybe your idea is already being done and you can contribute your expertise and your volunteers into that particular agency and look to see if there's what kind of gaps there are. I mean, when you talk about startup funding too, um, it's how do you partner with the agencies you're currently involved in or want to be involved in? And do you really need cash or do you just need boots on the ground? Oh. So don't always get stuck on, I need funding. Well, sometimes you don't need funding. Sometimes you can do it differently. And then don't be discouraged because there's going to be so many untold roadblocks. But if you're true to the purpose and the mission, they'll be resolved. Maybe not perfectly, but they can be resolved. And then be open and share with others. And, and I always say, if you're in an organization, have your elevator speech prepared. <laughs> if you can speak to someone for one minute, what do you want them to know about your initiative or your agency or your volunteerism, whatever, have that ready in the back pocket for whatever, whatever purpose. You know, and I like what you said a minute ago about you not not necessarily having to start from scratch. Like I just heard that you've got this going through May Court in Windsor. I, you know, or I just heard that you're doing this on your church on the east end of town. I'm on the west end and I want to do the same thing. Sharon, I'm gonna call you. Tell me how to get going. And you've already you've already got the umbrella, you've already got a lot of the answers there ready. It's just, yep, this is the way we do it. Boom, 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 boom. You take what's gonna work for your side of the community on the west end, do and change what you need to change. Absolutely but, make it your own. Yeah, yeah, you make it your own. Yeah. And that's what, when you talk about culture and you talk about sharing and being open, the more I always say, the more you give, the more you'll get in terms of information and ideas and sharing and being honest and open. Um, it really benefits the community, benefits you, but it benefits the community in terms of wherever you want your goal or whatever your passion is and what that looks like. All right. So Sharon, you are not active on social media for specific reasons, your own personal and professional choices. So listeners, if you have any questions, uh, send them to me at lynn at lynnmclaughlin.com, M-C-L-A-U-G-H-L-I-N. And just put in the subject line for Dr. Sharon Pike, and I will make sure that she gets your questions and, uh, and uh, we'll get back to you. Well, thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for your continued uh, leadership in the area of volunteerism and thinking outside of the box and how we can approach mental health in a different way. And thanks for all you do with your listeners and your different podcasts and getting people a chance to tell their stories. It's a, uh, it's pretty, when you think about things that we do for volunteerism to make you feel good, this kind of makes you feel good too, in terms of you're hoping to help somebody if they've got an idea or thinking about an idea and where that can go. Take Agreed. Care. Thank you. You too as well. See you soon. Well, gotta love it. All right. So next month, our guest is going to be Jim White. He's an author, a podcast host, a coach, and the founder of the Family Enrichment Academy. He spent the last 40 years studying the topics of personal development, marriage, and parenting. He's had six children, now has 12 grandchildren. And the mission of his academy is to empower parents to be the hero with their own families, to teach the principles, values, and beliefs that will lead to the successful family a family full of peace, joy, warmth, and love. 
Be well, everyone. We'll see you in March. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Taking the Helm. We hope that Lynn and her guests have provided valuable insights on how to create a safe emotional space for children and youth that empowers them to be their best selves. It starts with us at home and in our communities. Until we talk again, be well.